Well, if you've been with us, you know we have been making our way through the Gospel of John. We have now reached His hour, the hour that our Lord has talked about many times throughout this Gospel. It is His crucifixion and the most horrible and yet most wonderful thing that has ever happened in the history of this world. As we looked and started uh, looking at this day a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, as it were. And it was really a, a sham of a trial. It was illegal. They met at night. They weren't supposed to. Many other aspects of the trial were illegal. And they had already determined ahead of time that uh, Jesus was supposed to die, so they weren't even really trying him fairly. After uh, convicting him in that court of blasphemy and saying that he deserved to die, they then carried him off to the Roman uh, governor, Pontius Pilate, because it was only Rome's authority that allowed someone in that day to be killed. So when they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, it was early in the morning, probably five or six o'clock, and uh, Pilate no doubt did not want to deal with this. Uh, they stayed outside the praetorium so that they wouldn't be defiled, so that they could take the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Pilate uh, has been going out and talking to them and going back in his praetorium and talking to Jesus. And we saw last week that what they brought to Pilate was not a charge of blasphemy, which Pilate couldn't have cared less about, but rather a charge of some kind of sedition or insurrection. They, they said that Jesus was a political operative who wanted to overtake uh, the Roman Empire. And so that was a charge that Pilate had to take somewhat seriously. Although having found in Jesus not much of a reason to fear, he tried to set him free. He tried to release him. And in fact, he gave the Jews a choice. Uh, they had a tradition at the Passover, Passover that, that a prisoner could be set free, and Pilate chose the most despicable man he could, he could think of, a man called Barabbas, and said, would you rather Barabbas or Jesus be set free? And in fact, the, the Jewish leaders would rather Barabbas, a man who truly was a murderer and insurrectionist, to be set free. And they wanted Jesus to be crucified, which brings us to our text today. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, as I do every week, to open them up and follow along. And if you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along this morning, uh, you can look in the seats in front of you. Underneath, you'll find a, a, an English Standard Version Bible. It's the version I'm going to be reading from, and you'll find our passage on page 905 of that Bible. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Verse 1 tells us that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you study Roman history, you know that the Romans had three levels of scourging. The first beating, level one, that was the most mild, was really for what they considered to be mild uh, problems. Things like, one scholar said, hooliganism, mild crimes. The middle one was more severe. And that one was obviously for more severe crimes. And then the third level was the most severe. That one was given only after someone had been sentenced to die by crucifixion. So that third level accompanied the sentencing. So if you compare John's account here with the other accounts, the Synoptic Gospels, what it appears is that Jesus received two beatings that day. The first one we see in John 19, verse 1. Jesus hasn't been sentenced yet. And we see probably that same first beating talked about in Luke chapter 23. Because what we find in there is it says, Pilate called together the chief priests, he called together the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Nothing, he has done nothing deserving death. Therefore, he says, I will punish and release him. You see, there Pilate is not talking about a scourging that accompanies a conviction and a sentencing to crucifixion. He is saying, I'm going to punish him and then release him after I do that. Jesus, we know, however, received the most severe beating. This is because we, he was, in fact, sentenced to crucifixion. And if you read Matthew 27 and Mark 15, they actually use two different Greek words than John and Luke use. 
That John and Luke use a, a word for scourging that seems to point to this middle level. Matthew and Mark, however, use a word that no doubt points to the most severe beating there was. Now, the first beating that we call less severe was still very brutal. We're talking about the Roman Empire. We're talking about a pre-Christian world, a pagan world, where humanity was not seen as worth much, especially certain people. And therefore, even though Jesus first received this less severe beating, remember, Pilate was using this beating in an effort to try to placate these people that hated Jesus so much that they would rather him die than Barabbas. So you know Pilate wanted the second beating to be severe. This second-level beating would have been done by two Roman soldiers. They would have used a multi-lashed leather whip. And whereas the Jewish law restrained beatings to only 39 lashes, the Roman Empire had no such limit. So who knows how many times he would have been beaten in the second beating. Well, if the second beating before the sentencing was brutal, uh, this first beating, the second beating after the sentencing was horrific. This was a beating that was designed, first of all, it accompanied a death sentence, and second of all, it was designed to tell all who witnessed, do not cross Rome or this will happen to you. This one was done again by two soldiers. There was again no limit to the number of lashes. The victim would have been stripped completely naked and tied to a post so that he couldn't get away from the beatings. And the beatings were done by these leather whips with multiple lashes. However, at the ends of the lashes, there would have been tied to them metal spikes and bits of sharp bone and glass so as to tear away the skin with every blow. If you read ancient reports, uh, they speak, uh, other his historical accounts speak of the severity of these beatings, sometimes disabled the people or sometimes would even kill them, even though the Romans were trained to stop prior to death. I could describe for you what some of these ancient sources say, but I've I'm afraid some of you might actually get sick to your stomach. And if you don't think that Jesus was beaten severely by this second beating, all you have to do is read the prophecy in Isaiah about what he looked like after this beating. Isaiah 52, 14, speaking of the suffering servant, says that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Well, that was the second beating, but we're not there yet. This first beating happens here in 19.1. And notice that it doesn't involve simply whips. We see in verses 2 through 3, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen pictures or paintings or even maybe movies depicting Jesus with this crown of thorns. And I think often this crown of thorns is, is actually 
again, incorrectly depicted, because so often it looks like something you'd see on a rose bush. But these, this crown of thorns was not from a rose, but was taken from the date palm. And these thorns were like spikes that could reach up to 12 inches in length. And these spikes were pressed down on Jesus' head. And this mocking continued when these soldiers, Matthew says, puts a mock reed scepter in Jesus' hands. And, and the verb here, when they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, which was, again, uh, akin to Hail, Caesar, but in their own mocking way, that the verb here says they continued to punch him again and again and again with their hands. Matthew also tells us that they spit in his face. Isaiah chapter 50, again speaking of the suffering servant, says, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This whole thing was intended to mock our Lord Jesus Christ, to hurt him and to treat him as a fraud of a king. And by the end, it would be no doubt that Jesus' face would be a bloody mess. Pilate, in verses 4 and 5, goes out to them and says to them, now bringing Jesus with him, see, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate brings Jesus out to them. And what a sight he must have been. We know that Mary, at some point, his earthly mother, witnessed what happened to him. I can only imagine, and I would throw this out to you as parents, how you would feel witnessing this happening to your son and how much this marred his face. As I read this passage this week, I think verse 5 was the most heart-rending for me. As Jesus is brought out and presented mockingly to this crowd. And Pilate, as Jesus stands there in the crown of thorns and the purple robe, shouts out, Eke homo, behold the man. What was Pilate saying there? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us what he meant by that. We can only conjecture, but I am assuming, especially presenting Jesus in this way, that Pilate is saying something like, is this the guy that you so fear? Look at this pitiful wretch of a man. Hasn't he, hasn't he had enough? Do you need to kill him too? Little did he know that, really, biblically speaking, he was saying so much more. God created human beings, we find in Genesis. God created, they were called Adam and Eve, as you know, and God placed them in a garden. And he commanded them and said, I will be your king. I will be your king, but I am setting you up as my vice regents. I want you to reign over creation, but I want you to reign under my authority. 
And what we find in Genesis is that soon after God commanded them and gave him his law, uh, Adam and Eve decided to step out from under his authority and be their own kings. We call that sin. And after Adam sinned, after Eve sinned, we find this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold the man. He has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The first Adam falls into sin, rejects God's lordship, and God says, behold the man, and casts him out of Eden, casts him out of his presence and away from the tree of life. And here we have the second Adam. The second Adam suffering hearing these same words, behold the man, because he is bearing the wrath of God in order to reverse the exile, in order to bring his people back into God's presence, and in order to grant his people access again to the tree of life from which they had been banished. And in between both, we find in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man, his name is the branch. He will build the temple of the Lord. Well, if Pilate thought he was going to solicit any kind of pity, he was greatly mistaken. We see this in verses 6 to 8. Notice this. When the chief priests and officers see him, when they see Jesus in the state he was in, rather than being brought to repentance, rather than being driven to pity, rather than feeling sorry for this man that they knew was innocent, but that they sent here by trumped-up charges, notice that when they see him standing there, they scream for his torture unto death. And finally, we see here that they, that they finally come out with it. The real reason he's there. Up till this point, they had told Pilate that, that he was a political insurrectionist. But notice here that they finally admit that they want Jesus dead, not because of political reasons, but because of religious reasons. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Notice what they say. They claim that Jesus has made himself the Son of God. Of course, they couldn't be more wrong. John tells us, of course, in John chapter 1, that Jesus came into the world, the eternal Son of God. Jesus was born the King of angels. Jesus did not make himself to be anything. He was and is the Son of God incarnate. Notice Pilate's response. When Pilate heard that statement about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid. What's going on here? I mean, John hasn't even said anything up to this point about Pilate even being afraid. I mean, you, can kind of, you can kind of see it 
and infer that in, in sort of the way that Pilate is dealing with all of this, that he's, he's dealing with kind of inner demons and all of these things. But, but here John says, when he hears these words, he becomes even more afraid. What's going on here? Well, John doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us. In Matthew's account, it says uh, that Pilate's wife came to him, came to him and said, uh, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate has that on his mind as well. And in addition to everything else going on here, his wife is telling him, I had a dream about this man. And one thing we know about the Romans, just like the Greeks before them, is they were a very superstitious people. The Romans put a lot of credence into dreams, and they also believed that the gods walked among them. In fact, we see this, if you just read the book of Acts, we see this in Acts chapter 14. It says, now at Lystra, again, this is during that time, the Roman Empire, at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So we see that that the Romans had this idea that, that the gods walked among them, that the gods could take on human form. And, and now Jesus has not only been this, this man, no doubt that Pilate has, the likes of which Pilate has never confronted before, and now he's told by these people, this man claims to be the son of God. Furthermore, when Pilate was saying, are you a king, what did Jesus say to him? My kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate is very much shaken. And again, we see the irony here. That Pilate, the, the man who is standing in judgment of a man who is about to be sent to be crucified, is nevertheless fearful while Jesus remains calm. Pilate enters the praetorium to speak to Jesus alone. Pilate says, interestingly, the very first thing he says to Jesus after being frightened is, where are you from? Now, I don't know, again, how was he saying this? What did he mean by this? Scripture doesn't tell us. But if you read this in context, it, it seems as though Pilate is not asking him simply, were you, are you from Nazareth, or are you from, where, what area, Capernaum, where do you come from? I don't think that's what he's asking him. I think Pilate is saying, where are you from? I've got to get to the bottom of this. Are, are you a son of the gods? Pilate, it seems, however briefly, is given pause with his captor. Jesus, however, Remain silent. Pilate asked him, where are you from? And Jesus gives him no answer. Why? Well, in one sense, as, as one New Testament scholar that I read this week pointed out, what kind of answer in that moment could Jesus have even given him? I mean, what is he going to say? Where are you from? From Bethlehem? From Nazareth? 
from all eternity, from heaven, from God? I mean, the answer to those, all of those is yes. Jesus is all of those wrapped up into one person. He is God incarnate, born and living in those places for specific biblical reasons. And so really, he, he couldn't give him a simple answer anyway. But, but even more importantly than that, and we know this is true, Jesus remained silent so that he could be the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Notice this, Jesus is silent. If Pilate is in any way for a moment afraid of who Jesus might be, this silence overturns Pilate's fear. The silence seems to give Pilate sort of a combination of rage and exasperation. Now he lashes out at Jesus. Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? If you look at the Greek, Pilate is here emphasizing his authority. He's saying, do you not know who I am? You just picture the absurdity that this nothing governor of Judea, the armpit of the Roman Empire, is staring at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and saying, do you not know who I am? I have authority over you. I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you. Do you not realize that? And if you were standing in that room that day, watching this with the naked eye, I'm sure you would have agreed. Looking at this pitiful wretch of a man and, and this powerful Roman governor with nary a scratch on his face. And yet, Jesus, no doubt looking at Pilate now through puffy eyes, blood pouring down his face, busted, swollen lips, perhaps missing teeth, looks at Pilate and replies, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And once again, we see God's sovereign hand in all of this. Jesus is making it clear to Pilate and all of us in this room this morning that the only reason Jesus is in the condition he's in at that very moment, when he could have summoned all of his omnipotent power and crushed the Roman Empire by himself, the only reason that he is bowing bloodied before Pilate is because at that moment he is choosing to obey the will of his father and drink the cup of the father's wrath. Even Pilate himself, Jesus says, must fulfill the will of God in this matter. Jesus must drink the cup of wrath that the Father has given him, and part of that cup involves submitting himself to Pilate. Jesus says something more. He says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
Who's Jesus talking about? Well, he doesn't specify, so we have to guess. I used to think it was Judas. A lot of people do think it's Judas, but if you think about it, Judas didn't hand Jesus over to Pilate. Judas handed Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. It was Caiaphas and Annas and these chief priests who handed Jesus over to Pilate. Jesus said, it was he who handed me over to you who committed the greater sin. In either case, it doesn't really matter. Jesus' statement here is absolutely brilliant because in this one statement, look at everything that Jesus is saying here. He is saying to Pilate, everything that's going on here today, including what you are doing to me and including what you are saying to me and including everything that happened to me prior to this is ordained and ruled by my Father in heaven. He has absolute sovereignty over this entire affair. And yet... Notice what else he says. Even though God is completely sovereign over all of this, Jesus says that he is not the author of sin. Jesus says, in fact, some sin that's been committed in here is yours, Pilate, and some is Caiaphas's. But none of the sin here is my father's. We find here uh, something very similar to this being said in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. In a sermon, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, in verses 12 and 13, we see Pilate really show his weakness as a leader. The text says... That from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. Now you read that and you think, sought to release him? I thought he could release him. Pilate has just proclaimed himself to be absolutely sovereign over all of these proceedings and that he had the authority to release him if he wanted to. And now we find him trying to release him but somehow not being able to. Well, the point is that he could have if he chosen to, but he's a weak leader And he allows the Jewish leaders here to exploit something that he feared. We see here uh, that the Jews, again, scream at Pilate, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar's. Now, this statement, Caesar's friend, we think is actually a, a formal title, something that was granted to Pilate by Tiberius Caesar. So when they're threatening that if you do this, you are not Caesar's friend, they're threatening to go and tell Tiberius what, in fact, Pilate is doing so that he will not be as favorable to him. Now, it's interesting. Historically, it appears as though Pilate was given this title, this friend of Caesar, through another man named Sejanus. And this man, Sejanus, He knew Caesar, Tiberius, he also knew Pilate, and he kind of linked them up and somehow through his influence granted this friend of Caesar title to Pilate. But interestingly enough, only a couple of months before this trial, Sejanus did something to upset Tiberius and he had him executed. It's interesting. I wonder, I wonder had that not happened if Pilate would have been afraid at this threat. 
It shows you God's sovereign hand and even insignificant, seemingly insignificant events of history. But Sejanus had been executed by Tiberius, and so you see Pilate choosing his own political ambitions over doing what is right and just. The Jewish leaders have pushed the right political buttons, and John tells us that it worked. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. In a passage full of irony, this is perhaps the biggest. Here you have the Roman governor of Judea, and he sits in judgment on the King of kings and Lord of lords. John tells us it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Now again, when we think of how John is using this word, the Passover, he's not speaking about the Passover meal. The Passover meal has, again, already been uh, celebrated by Jesus and his apostles. What, what John is, is saying is the Passover, he's talking about the upcoming Feast of Unleavened Bread, as I mentioned last week. And so, John is saying it's the day of preparation before the Sabbath that, that uh, previews the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Pilate says here to them, behold your king. Now again, I'm sure Pilate didn't really know what he was saying here. He probably is saying this uh, for no other reason than just to irritate these Jewish leaders. But what he says couldn't be more true again. They scream back to him, take him away, take him away and crucify him. John tells us in chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And notice their answer. This blows me away. The chief priests answer to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That's unbelievable. And I think what they say here is, is actually, uh, again, saying far more than they might even think they're saying. For in rejecting Jesus, who are they really rejecting? They're rejecting their God. That's exactly, again, what happened in the garden. By taking the crown... In, in a sense, off of God's head and placing it on his own, Adam was saying, you're not, long, you're not my God, I am. And we see throughout the Old Testament in Jewish history, we see over and over again the people of Israel rejecting God as their king. 1 Samuel verse 8, then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, behold, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. And this happened time and time again. And in fact, that's why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come because from Adam until Jesus, there was no human being that didn't in some way take the crown off of the head of God and place it on their own. And so Jesus had to come as the second Adam and live a life completely devoted to the King in heaven. Jesus came to be the second Adam, the one who from the first day he drew breath would perfectly obey his heavenly Father all the days of his life and would say, even when it took him to the cross, not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. God says in Samuel, don't worry. Don't worry that they want this man Saul to be king over them. Because you see, one day I'm going to choose a man after my own heart. We see Scripture say when he had removed Saul, when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This passage is so full of amazing statements, but perhaps none are as amazing as, as what I haven't even mentioned yet, and that is how many times Jesus is declared in John 18 and 19 by this Roman pagan governor to be completely innocent. And we will see all throughout the crucifixion that Jesus is declared by this person and that person and this person to be innocent of all charges. Pilate says three times, once in chapter 18 and twice here, he says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And three times, Pilate, a pagan governor, declares Jesus to be innocent. And Jesus is going to continue to be declared innocent even while he suffers death on a cross. And you have to ask yourself, if Jesus over and over and over again is declared to be innocent, then why did he die? It makes no sense. And in fact, if God is sovereign over all of this, then it makes God unjust. If Jesus, the only man who never deserved death, nonetheless went to the cross and died. And yet, with Pilate saying that he is innocent, it's as though God in his sovereignty is using Pilate as his mouthpiece and making it clear to the world and clear to all who would one day read this passage that Jesus is spotless. How could he do it? Why did he do it? Why would God send his spotless, sinless son to the cross if he was innocent? Well, for one reason only. And Christian, you know the answer. 
He died not for his sins, but for yours. Everything that he went through on this horrific day was to save you from your sins. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Christian, this morning, rejoice. Whatever it is you're going through this morning, rejoice because your sins have been paid in full. There is no longer any condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. And rejoice this morning as well, Christian, because the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end with Jesus beaten and bloodied. John tells us in Revelation 19 that he saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes not beaten and bloodied. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head not a crown of thorns. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, not a scarlet robe given by Roman soldiers, but a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And he's not alone, surrounded by those who are chanting for his death, but he is riding to earth and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes not blood, but a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, no longer holding a fake scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let us rejoice and exalt then and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we gather here this morning to remember.